Cast. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to episode 141 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. The Burden of Command podcast is a production of the Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what the Leadership Phalanx does, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X. Now, just another reminder, uh, you may have noticed there was no Thursday episode, uh, going back to one episode a week, uh, though we'll be coming out every Monday, so don't fear, we're still here, got great guests, uh, we're just going back to once a week, because a lot of folks are starting to travel, myself included, getting into other projects, which I'll be happy to announce here coming soon, got more podcast projects in the works, so if you enjoy this, you'll definitely love those. Now, on to today's guest. I'm always excited on here when I can have a fellow Marine to discuss leadership with, and that's exactly what Courtney Lynch is. Uh, She's also an executive coach who works with high-performing leaders to help them achieve next-level results. After her service in the Marine Corps, uh, her and her friend Angie Morgan, another Marine Corps vet, ooh to both of you ladies, uh, co-created the leadership development firm Lead Star. And they co-wrote the New York Times best-selling books, Spark and Leading from the Front. Their third book, Bet on You, How Leaders Win with Risk, will be out in spring of 22. And uh, Courtney and Angie and I have already been discussing having them come back on uh, to talk about that new book. But during the course of this conversation, we touch on a lot of stuff. You'll find out what they mean by a spark. You'll find out uh, what you can do to create those sparks. And uh, you'll just hear some great insight again into uh, Marine Corps leadership and how awesome uh, female Marines are at leading. So with that, let me go ahead and get out of your way. Let that stinger play and let you get into this outstanding interview with Courtney Lynch. Well, hello, Courtney, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Hello, Earl. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Oh, I am excited about this. You know, I, I moan about it on here a few times. I very rarely get to talk to Marines about leadership on this show. I think I've had three uh, in, in the 140 episodes. Uh, so I love talking leadership, especially with fellow Marines. I'm tired of talking uh, about it with Air Force and Army folks. So <laughs> I'm really excited to hear your answer to this question that I start all my guests off with. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? You know, I hear that phrase and I don't think burden, I think privilege. And I think it's because I look at command as a responsibility. Now, the burden is you have a high performance bar to meet so that you get the privilege of leading others. Yet I say, bring it on. I want that burden of command because I know I'm at my best when I'm working to serve, lead and support others. Mm. Yeah, no, well said, well said. And, and I, I like that, you know, because it is, it's a privilege. And, and um, you know, it's not one that, it's not one that every person who is in a leadership role actually gets given to them, right? Does that question make sense? Yeah, 100%, yeah. right? I mean, it's um, the burden of command is, is, I think, that internal process of recognizing the responsibility to lead. And I think sometimes people are in a position of authority or power, and they take that position, and they 
really relish in the status of that. And I don't think that means they're bad or wrong. I just think that means they haven't had a chance to really understand the responsibility of leadership. And so I think that the opposite is also true, that some people might not be in a role of formal authority, yet they take on a responsibility to be that strong contributor to the teams they're a part of. They take that opportunity to influence outcomes because they have earned the trust and respect of others. So while they're not in an official position of command, there are many leaders that um, aren't anointed or appointed, but step up to lead when needed. Mm, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I like because, you know, and again, uh, for listeners, I was enlisted. You were uh, an officer. You made it to captain, correct? I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. And so I'm sure you saw it, right? So like, it, you know, when we get promoted in, in the military, you know, there's a lot of ceremony and pomp and circumstance around that. And, and, you know, somebody actually gives you that rank. Yes, you've done things to earn it, but they give you that title. But that doesn't necessarily make you a leader. You have to, your, your troops have to buy in and give you that gift of followership before you're actually a leader, right? You know, Errol, I love that you're bringing this up because I think this is where Hollywood has done a little bit of the, a disservice to what military leadership is, right? Because I think that many think as soon as you have the rank, you actually become the leader. Yet you're exactly right. You, to earn the trust of those that are under your command in the military or on your team and in your sphere of influence as a leader in the private sector, you really have to demonstrate the behaviors that allow you to build the trust to be able to influence outcomes and inspire others. So I would say a leader is much more about how you show up and the behaviors that you demonstrate that allow you to earn that trust than uh, the title that you have or in the military for you and I, any sort of rank that you had on your collar. Right. Now, we, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording and our experiences were very, very similar. Uh, you know, I remember when I first got out of the Marines, I got in my first civilian job and running into people who quote, who were quote unquote in leadership roles and sitting back and thinking like, wow, how, you know, how is this person in this leadership role? They, they really have very few leadership skills, if any. Um, and so how did, how did you kind of deal with that? kind of paradigm coming from a, a leadership rich environment, if you will, to one where leadership is kind of kind of an afterthought, really. Yeah, I would say it's undertaught, right? And I think yeah. that's what gave me perspective. You know, I was I was really lucky when I joined the Marine Corps, you know, there were I wanted the challenge, I wanted the adventure, I wanted to earn some money for my education, right? And I remember that my recruiter, my OSO, the officer selection officer that helps you decide that the Marine Corps is for you, kept telling me that I was going to, you know, get those benefits and I was going to get some challenge and I was going to get a great adventure. Yet the most important thing from my Marine Corps experience is I would leave the Corps a leader. And I knew that this was a positive statement, right? He would say it with fanfare. He would remind me of this all the time. Yet I didn't really know what it meant, right? And, you know, you and I, Earl, were 
we're taught how to lead. And I think, you know, by the numbers, very simple uh, behaviors that everyone can understand, but certainly difficult to apply, especially in the complexity and the chaos of the environments in which we served as Marines. Yet I feel for a lot of my civilian peers, when I came out of the Marine Corps, I realized that I had stumbled into a really, I mean, a truly world-class leadership development experience that I thought, people were just getting at their first jobs, right? If you worked at a bank or you worked in marketing or you were you know, over on the logistics team, you were just getting this in your first and early career experiences. Yet um, I realized I was very lucky to have had the experience that I had. And so I've always found, and for the past 17 years, I've been helping to develop leaders and sharing a lot of the great experience I had developing as a Marine leader. And I realized that just like financial literacy, right, there are two things that are really undertaught in our society, nuts and bolts, how do I manage money and how do I make those tough in the moment, but good for the long run financial decisions, and then nuts and bolts, how do I lead people, right? And our society talks a lot about managers and leaders, like they're very interchangeable. I think they're two equally important skill sets, how to manage and how to lead, yet they're different. And the leadership side is definitely undertaught. Yeah. Oh, I, I 100% agree. And I've, I've cited this research on here a couple of times uh, before, but, and I, I'm not sure if you've heard this or not, but um, Harvard Business Review, I want to say it was in 2014, they published a paper and the title of it is, we wait too long to develop our leaders. And what the gist of the article was is uh, they had done a global survey. I want to say they had something like 12,000 respondents across all sectors, many different countries across the globe. But two of the questions in the survey were, uh, what age were you promoted into your first leadership management position? And what age did you receive your first leadership management formal training? And what they found was, is there was nearly a decade or more of a gap between when you got promoted into the position to when you received your first training. And first of all, that's just sad. So like when I talk about getting out into the civilian world and running into to leaders who really didn't know that much about leadership, it's not necessarily a knock on them. It's a knock on, on the system, if you will. Yeah, 100%. But what you just said there was, was I think, very critical because in the Marines, yes, day one boot camp, uh, and I'm assuming the same thing in officer school, they started day one. It was all about leadership, all about leadership principles, all about leadership traits, pound, 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 all about leadership. A hundred percent, right? It was, and you weren't leading anything. You were just getting that foundation. And then you would learn to apply that foundation as you would step into leadership billets, right? That first fire team that you led, that first squad that you led, that first time you were at a platoon level where you were leading, right? And that's what I found amazing about the Marine Corps. They were preparing you to lead before you even had the authority or the responsibility. So you were building this fluency. And then the curriculum was the same for that 18-year-old who's stepping on the yellow footprints at Paris Island or at San Diego as to that general who's 52 and leading in the Pentagon, he's using the same principles and the same philosophies 
He's just applying them in a, in a different way for his his command and the the nature of his role and his job. And so that's what I think is beautiful, right? It's it's one language of leadership, and it's applied based on the complexity of of where you're leading. Yet it's taught to everyone at the earliest stage, so that by the time you get to more and more complex jobs you're ready to go. So that Harvard Business Review statistic, I've seen it play out time and time again, where people are just plopped into a role, most often because they're a really great individual contributor, or they have awesome technical skills, and those things should be applauded. Yet, we shouldn't expect people to be able to take their great skills as an individual contributor and suddenly leverage that into team leadership. We need to help people prepare better for those roles. And I say, let's start preparing folks as early as possible. So um, I'm in full agreement with the article and I see that the challenge out there and professionals want it too, right? We all want to go to work and do our jobs well. And when we need a new or a different skill set, sometimes it is on the technology front. Sometimes it's on the people front. Sometimes it's on the management and budget front. We, we usually are eager to learn when we're in roles and trying to do our best. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, and that's kind of where, um, where you, if I got the timeline right, you and Angie, uh, so you met in officer school, correct? We met in something called the basic school. So okay. Marine Corps officers do uh, a 10 week or, or two summer experience. If you're ROTC, you become commissioned as a second Lieutenant of Marines. And after that, Every Marine, no matter what your specialty is in the Corps, goes to six months, uh, every Marine officer of six months of infantry school. And at that six-month program, the marathon, uh, is where Angie and I met. Yeah. No, so it's it's interesting. So, again, we were talking about this in, in uh, uh, the, the pre-roll workup here and for, for listeners. Uh, so you, after your service, you went and got your law degree, correct? I did. I did. Yeah. Using the GI Bill. So uh, what was interesting about that is, and what you just said is, so we do the same thing on the enlisted side. I was, you know, what they call a pogue, personnel other than grunt for people who aren't list, uh, aren't familiar with that term. We're just all pogues, Earl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> supporting, uh, supporting those straight leggers, <laughs> supporting <exactly>. the infantry. <laughs> but it was interesting. So when I got to, uh, so, so we called it uh, MCT, Marine Combat Training yeah, on the enlisted yeah. side. Yeah. And my CO... Uh, had actually got his law degree. And I remember we were chatting about it and I was asking, because I, you know, I grew up reading John Grisham books and that was kind of somewhat of like, I had this idea, right? See, we live parallel lives, Earl, because I love myself some John Grisham books too. So. It's, it's a little spooky. <laughs> but I, I remember finding out he was a lawyer and I was like, oh, Jag, this is great. You know, and I'm like, so, you know, when do you go into the Jag court? He's like, no, I'm an infantry officer. I'm like, with a law degree? He's like, hey, yeah, and I love it. <laughs> and so, Yeah, I think that's the little known. Well, maybe it's more known today, right? There are a lot of recovering lawyers out there. But the legal education is an amazing preparation for pretty much anything. And it was a, a pretty intriguing mentor of mine that I had in college who really planted the seed for me. She said, you know, no matter what you want to do, a law degree can be valuable and don't think of it as a traditional, you're going to go be an attorney, but think of it as, as training your brain to think critically and look at problems and do new ways and, and be able to do that deductive reasoning. And I always loved reading and writing. Those were my things. I was more of a liberal arts person than a mathematician in my studies. And so it just seemed like the, like a business degree for me, but one that played towards my interests and strengths. 
Oh, and, and I love that advice because that's that's what I loved about it. And I loved about, you know, again, on Grisham, like some of the twists and turns we throw in there. But, you know, because I think that's a skill that, that is sorely missing in, in a lot of uh, in a lot of organizations today is that ability to, A, think critically, but B, be able to go and, and actually do some type of, of research and be able to support the reason why you agree or disagree with something. And I think that skill alone right there can set apart a lot of leaders and a lot of organizations, right? No, absolutely, right? Um, and it's, again, we don't get a lot of opportunities. You know, sometimes in life we're studying for the test rather than studying as abstractly as I did in law school. And I feel very fortunate, again, to have, I was equipped with the intangibles to lead people and then some extra laps around the track on critical thinking skills. I probably needed those extra years in law school to, to tune up my brain because you're right, just solid advocacy. And advocacy, I think, in the workplace through the lens of leadership, right I'm thinking about you know I my opinion isn't better or worse because it's different it's just I want to clearly share it so that when I'm working as part of a group I can help the group get to the best idea which isn't going to be my idea and it's not going to be somebody else's idea it's going to ultimately with the complexity we deal with in the working world today going to be a combination of probably five or more someone's ideas and I think law school really helps you uh, synthesize thoughts so you can present points clearly and then also be eager to hear the counterpoint not because it's an argument because you know that's where better ideas come from when um, lots of people are candidly sharing their perspectives yeah no a hundred percent and i love what you said there because i think that's another key element here is is uh humility you know i get a lot of folks on here who you know either think about the military uh listener wise who are either thinking about the military are in the military or have gotten out or and are doing their startup they're doing their entrepreneurial uh, thing right now right and just like in the military, the thing that really sets a good leader apart is that ability to do what you just said. Realize that your answer doesn't have to be the answer, no matter what your rank is, no matter what your title is, whether it's captain, colonel, general, CEO, sales manager, whatever. But realize and embrace some of that. Uh, I do a lot of uh, work with cognitive diversity with folks and embrace that and be able to come up to a better solution than you could ever come up with on your own, right? No, 100%, right? And it's interesting, like we go we go through stages as adults when we're evolving as a leader, if we're committed to becoming a better leader, right? And I, I hope your listeners are, I think they are just by who's listening to this conversation right now, yet it's so important that we just spend an ounce of time developing our leadership skills compared to the many, many pounds of time on our technical skills or academic experiences or real world work experiences. Yet as adults, we move through some phases if we're committed to development. We start off, you know, as as more of a conformer, and I'll use an expression that seems very different than conformist, right? Because conformists can feel negative, but we start off as that consummate team player. So I don't want mm. people to think of conformer in a negative light, but you're a team player, you take direction well, you're eager to meet standards, right? Those are all great things. It's early stage leadership. Then we move to an area that's really popular if you grew up in an Asian country, if you grew up in the United States, if you grew up in Europe, you were socialized to be an achiever. You were socialized to have an agenda, you were socialized to advocate for that agenda, you were socialized to exceed standards um, and win and win and win. And that is exciting, right? Our culture fuels that achiever mindset. 
Yet the most evolved leaders, as leaders mature, and this doesn't just mean in age or years, it's really more in thinking and the experiences where they've had that burden of command or they've had that heat experience where they've been um, in a high visibility, high stakes role and that shaped them. They start to evolve to interdependent leadership. So they go from conformer to achiever to interdependence. And that's that collaborative leader that has been humbled probably many times, right? I know, Earl, you and I have been humbled many times through our Marine Corps experiences alone (laughs) and probably lots of things that came after. Uh, Yet they realize that there, there is a higher form of leadership, which is about interdependence, not just that full on independent achievement mode. Yeah, no, and I love the way you said that because many, many episodes ago, I had uh, Colonel uh, Lee Ellis, uh, former POW during Vietnam, um, and we we I can't remember if we talked about this during the show or when we were doing our pre-roll chat, uh, but he had mentioned that that he had read somewhere where they they did a a kind of a a psych profile on. Uh, successful military leaders. And I think this is true for civilian leaders as well. He said the most successful military leaders had a very unique combination of uh, type A personality, but a desire for teamwork. And usually those two things don't exist together. Usually if you're a type A, you want to be in control. You want to be in charge. You're not 100% about teamwork other than how quickly they will follow you. But the, it was it was this combination of type A, want to be in charge, want to be in control, but wanting to operate in a team environment that was kind of the magic sauce for successful leaders. Uh, what do you think about that? I do. I mean, I sense that you, I do agree. You have to have that driver personality. So that's what I'm kind of saying with the type A, like you're results oriented and you want to accomplish the mission. Now, I think there's lots of ways to accomplish that mission. It doesn't have to be the stereotypical dominant kind of decisive out in front leader. I think there are subtle conscientious leaders or leaders that seek steadiness and harmony that bring a lot of value to uh, getting the team to a result. Yet I I agree that the type A is synonymous with achieving results. You've got to have it. Yet I think leaders that are humble enough and have learned to check their ego enough uh, are going to get much more of that team, that's that true strong team feel where people give their discretionary effort, right? And discretionary effort is what we can do if we really want to, right? A lot of us will meet standards and be that strong professional, yet when a person in our work environment taps into our discretionary effort, there's really, it's just, it's where that just whole new level of accomplishment, goal achievement, satisfaction can can actually happen. So I, I think that the Colonel is definitely onto something. Oh, yeah. Well, and you said something else there that I think is really great. And uh, we'll, we'll transition to talking about Spark here in just a second. But this has been a, a fantastic conversation already here. Uh, Absolutely. We're birds of a feather. All This is great. Like, I, I hope you can do like a 120 minute episode because I don't want to stop talking with you. <laughs> well, you know, I was actually thinking about that already. I was like, uh, we're going to have to get uh, you and Angie both on here at some point in time, especially uh, as we mentioned, and we'll get into this, you have a, a, another book coming out here pretty soon. So we'll talk about that. But it, it, you talked about myths, and, and we'll get into that because that's a segue into Spark. Uh, but you talked about some of the Hollywood myths, right? And and a lot of Hollywood portrayals of military leadership are the kind of the starling, spitting, slobbering drill instructor type. And uh, 
And those exist, and there's a place for that type of leadership in the military. And maybe there's a, t- a place for that type of uh, leadership, if you want to call it leadership, in private sector organizations. But what they miss, and what even gets overlooked, like one of my favorite movies, uh, everybody likes to point to Full Metal Jacket, but I'm a Heartbreak Ridge guy. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> both of them are awesome classics, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, right. But-, but I think Gunning Highway, like a lot of people miss – the level of care and empathy that Gunning yeah, Highway say, had. Yeah, the care and compassion piece, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, they, they, you know, the the whole scene where he's in the prison cell and he talks about, you know, shooting the, the wings off of a fly, and, you know, that whole nine yards. But they missed the part in the movie where when he has the, and his name just popped out of my head, but the, the young uh, Hispanic uh, Marine yeah, I know who you're talking about too, but I yeah cannot yeah. access the name. <laughs> and and he's he's showing up late and he's doing all these things and he gets mad, but when he finds out why, he goes out and he helps the guy I, yeah. instead of writing him up. Instead of yeah, it's that leader yeah. that takes it, the chance to be holistic and to look at the bigger picture. Right, that's what he was doing. That's what Gunny was doing, and that's what you would look for your seasoned, mature leaders like your gunnery sergeants, who are those very senior Marines, uh, to to be in that position of maturity to look at the bigger picture. Yeah, 100%. So, as promised, Spark, How to Lead Yourself and Others to Greater Success by Angie Morgan, my guest today, Courtney Lynch, and Sean Lynch. Now, Sean is kind of the outlier there. We won't hold this against him. He's an Air Force guy, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but- so, you know, we had to be inclusive, but Sean <laughs> is definitely, you know, if you were talking to him, you probably would have ended the conversation. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no I, I got a lot of respect uh, working with him on the book, right? And Sean and I are not married. People always think we are because we have the same last name, but uh, <laughs> he's a, he's a, a great uh, former Air Force fighter pilot, and he really put a nice balance on our hardcore Marine Corps message. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, he, you know, I, I can imagine. So, but what I love about the book, okay, and, and this is where the myth segue comes in. Sure. You, you start off in, in chapter one, confronting myths of leadership. And the first one is leaders are born. What? Why is that a myth? You know, people think of leadership as some special secret sauce and you either had it at birth, something, you know, some DNA lottery that you won. And it's accessible to you or else it's it's curtains for your hope as a leader, right? And and that's just not the case, right? Leaders aren't born, they're made. And and you know, I guess you could give an argument that maybe you know, like some of us are born like I have a daughter who's an amazing swimmer, right? She was just built to swim. Yet she's made herself into an elite swimmer by the diligence that it takes to succeed at that sport, right? And I think leadership is a great analogy. You might have a heart for leading people that was intrinsic in you at birth, yet all of us can become better leaders. It's just that commitment to to the journey so that you can be made into someone who has that ability to influence and inspire others to lead. And, and I love that because I, obviously I agree. Uh, you know, spoiler alert for folks listening, I'm going to be agreeing with Courtney on a lot of stuff here because <laughs> we're thinking in harmony on a, a lot of this. Uh, Forged in the same fire. Earl. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, Some and, might call it brainwashed, but we know it was leadership development. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, but again, that's, I think that's the critical thing is is, like you said, like, we, we see some of these leaders that are kind of enshrined that, that everybody reveres. Like, you know, John Maxwell wasn't born John Maxwell. 
things happen to him in his life. Thing, experiences happen. He learned from other people how to end up being John Maxwell. Um, and so I love this. And, you know, your, your next myth is that leaders trust their instincts. Now, before I make any comment about that, I'm curious, you know, what you say about that is why that's a myth. Because our instincts are so valuable. And I, I think you could put emotions and feelings and instincts all into a very similar category. So valuable for us as people, so valuable for us as leaders, yet they are a starting point. And the most effective leaders process their instincts, they understand their instincts, yet oftentimes it just might be a one second, two second, three second pause where they inhibit their instincts and instead choose reasoned leadership responses, right? And I think that let's take the just humans are hardwired to self-preserve. And so when there is a challenge, oftentimes our first instinct is to place blame. Why is it someone else's or something else's fault as to why we're not achieving in the moment or why we're not progressing? And when you feel that instinct to place blame, very human, very natural, very normal, leaders who have understood leadership, who have learned leadership, are able to see that instinct, override it a bit, and bring accountability to the forefront. What's accountability? It's seeking to take responsibility before they begin to place blame, because the blame bandwagon ultimately goes nowhere. It might feel great to jump on board, yet it doesn't allow you to move the needle on progress, right? So that's just a very simple example. We could take one more. Um, let's say my instinct is is anger, right? Like maybe I'm a hothead and I just fly off the handle at the receipt of bad news. If I keep bringing that instinctual response, no one's ever going to bring me any news that I don't want to hear. And eventually I'm going to be in an echo chamber. And so leaders learn to override their instincts, to be able to receive difficult information, to be able to create a where people feel safe so they can get the full picture and then make decisions accordingly. So instincts can get us into trouble when they're unexamined. Sometimes our instincts are great though. Our instinct to add value to someone, to be of support, to help lighten their load. Those are instincts the moment we feel them, we should evaluate them and then commit to the actions of service that they inspire. Mm. No, I love that. And I love those examples, all of those examples, because it's it's true. And, and so the the one about temper, that's me. Uh, I'm a natural <laughs> hothead. Yes, um, it, it is a common challenge, especially with our core background. I, I might be with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the knife hands come out and the whole nine yards. But, uh, but I heard a great story, and I think the one that drove drove this point home for me um, was from Colin Powell. And, and I don't know anybody who would ever define, uh, you know, whichever – title you want to associate with him, General Secretary uh, Colin Powell, as a hothead. But uh, I don't know, have you ever heard, have you ever heard him tell his story about one of his first uh, evals? No, I haven't. Please share. I just say, wow, what a man of wisdom. So I, I can't <laughs> wait to hear. Please. Yeah. Well, so um, I don't remember the circumstances, but he he had a soldier who had messed up and had to stand tall in front of his desk. And he said, I lost it. I went all in. He goes, I, I smashed, uh, you know, I smashed my hand down on the desk so hard that that, that glass sheet, you know, kind of the classic glass covering the desktop, he goes, okay. it cracked. He goes, and my, uh, my XO happened to be walking by while I was chewing this, this soldier out. And, uh, he goes, he let me do my thing. He let the, the young enlisted soldier leave. He calls me into his office 
And he just looks at me and he says, if I ever catch you talking to a soldier like that again, your career is over. And he said, I'm sitting there like, well, wait a minute. I kind of thought this was like what we were talking about. This was a Hollywood version, right? Yeah, he'd seen it before somewhere, right? As seen on TV. (laughs) But he's like, what got me was he said, my career is over. And I didn't want that to happen. He goes, so I made an effort from that point forward to keep my temper in control. So when my next uh, performance evaluation comes around, there was a line in there. He he didn't let me forget it, but it said, uh, young Lieutenant Powell has a severe temper, but makes a concerted effort to keep it under control. Yeah. And he goes, it was that evaluation. I, pr- I, I, I printed it off, kept it, and I looked at that my entire career to remind me that that was my basic instinct. Yeah, what a story of courage, and not necessarily on uh, Lieutenant Powell's side, but certainly on some on Lieutenant Powell's side, but on his CO, to be able to tell him that. Imagine, imagine if he had not had the courage to give him that constructive, yet highly critical feedback. We would never have known the genius of Colin Powell, right? That story, he would have just been one more person that didn't make it as a leader. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and I bet, I, you know, I'll put you on the spot here a little bit, but I bet you probably have a story like that somewhere where somebody gave you that one piece of advice that made the difference in your career, right? Oh my gosh, I probably have like 10 of them, right? And I mean, <laughs> even still today, I think about, you know, Angie and I have built a successful business. I mentioned earlier over 17 years, it's on my mind because we just celebrated Lead Star's birthday. And Congratulations. We take every, yeah, thank you. We take every year in business seriously, especially with the pandemic, you know, environment and, and all the challenges that have been thrown our way. Yet, I mean, even just a couple of days ago, she sent me an email and said, hey, I've got a couple of things I need to talk to you about. And why are you doing this? And it was really good guidance about how I was making some assumptions about her and kind of where she is and and what she was thinking. And they were just flat out wrong. So one, I was making assumptions and two, I was not listening to her position. So just right there, constructive criticism showing that, you know, we're always work in progress, works in progress as a leader, as leaders. And uh, that's why our business partnership has been so successful because if the roles were reversed and I had some feedback to give it to her, I could just drop a message and we could jump on the phone and, and have a discussion about it. And no one's, you know, there's no hurt feelings. No one's hanging on to it for animosity days later, right? I'm just remembering it as something that was valuable for me, even though it wasn't what I wanted to hear. I don't want to be told that I'm making assumptions and not listening to my business partner, but surely I was because she felt that way. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Well, three, we've already talked about a little bit here. I don't know if there's anything you want to add, but uh, the, the myth that a title makes you a leader. Yeah, I think that really what I want to add to that one, because you're right, we've talked about it a bit, is leadership's a choice, right? We don't get anointed or appointed. We choose to lead and we get hundreds of opportunities to demonstrate leadership behavior every day. We don't have to take a hundred plus opportunities, right? We're one person. We're not going to be perfect. But if three or four times when we're given an opportunity to be of value, to contribute in a valuable way, to show the way or lead the way, if we just step up and choose to lead, that's how we become leaders, not because of a fancy title or a promotion or some position of power or status. And and those things aren't wrong, right? I respect and appreciate being in positions of power or status. And I think a lot of us aspire to be in them at certain seasons of our career. Uh, the key is just those aren't leadership, right? Those are the trappings and the rewards potentially of being a leader who's effective. Mm. Well, and I love, I love what you just said there. 
you know, because it reminds me. So I'm a I'm a big history buff. You know, that's yeah. where my the, the name leadership phalanx comes from for my organization. Uh, but you know, those positions of power, those positions of influence, like when you look historically, the reason those are so revered today, historically, those were the positions that exposed you to the most danger. Uh, and, and I think we've kind of lost that. Like now, as you mentioned, a lot of times we, you know, some leaders get caught up in the trappings or they want to be a leader just because they want the corner office or they want the exclusive gym access or, you know, whatever it is. And they don't realize that, that they, they are exposing themselves to, to greater risk and greater responsibility. Right. Yeah. Right. They want, they want the title, but they don't want the burden of command. So I'm going to fast forward here a little bit because uh, something else you all talk about in this book that I really love and, and listeners look, we're really going to just skim this book. I want you to go buy a copy of Spark, How to Lead Yourself and Others to Greater Success by Angie Morgan, Courtney Lynch, and Sean Lynch. But you, uh, in, in, and we're just talking about the first couple of chapters here, but you go on to talk about the four keys to being credible. And I love this list. Um, and, and if you don't mind, we'll just go through them kind of one by one here. Sure. Uh, the, the first one that you mentioned is understanding and meeting the standards of others. And I like that you put others. Uh, so, so talk about that for a minute. Absolutely. Right. That's how we get credibility, right? We get credibility and credibility leads to trust. When people are looking to be influenced or inspired, even if they're not formal in that awareness, right? Oh, I need to be influenced or inspired, right? It usually isn't that formal. It's usually subconscious. I need help. I need support. I need direction. I need permission, whatever it might be. They're looking to people that they perceive as credible. And when we're in an environment and we're working to earn the trust to influence and inspire, to lead, we have to understand what are the standards that are appreciated or valued in this environment. Like if we pull it back to the Marine Corps, I knew that to get a 300 PFT, the fitness test, which was a standard of the Corps, I knew exactly how fast I had to run. I knew how many sit-ups I needed to do. And I knew what I needed to do for pull-ups or the arm hang. And so I think that it's just really important that while things might not be that crystal clear in the private sector, we look around and we see. I mean, it can be something as simple as when our boss sends us an email, do they send four or five paragraphs or do they send just three or four sentences? And we adopt to what their standard of communication is. If we have three or four paragraphs to say, but they're always sending us short brief emails, maybe we need to pick up the phone and call them and then send a short summary and maybe attach some notes, right? It's always about perceiving what is somebody else's standard? What do they look for, for uh, credibility to be given to others? What do they look for in a credible performer? And I think the key is too, when we look at the standards of our organization or we look at what success is like in the role that we're in, that we don't just pick and choose to see the standards that we appreciate or that we're good at, like we're kind of moving through a cafeteria and taking the things we like and leaving the things we don't. We're looking at all the standards and being really honest with ourselves. Where are the ones we excel at and where are the ones where we have some gaps so that we can start to improve our performance before anyone needs to tell us? I think that's a key to being credible. 
Yeah, no, and I love that, and I love that distinction. It reminds me, so, you know, as I mentioned, when I got out of the Marines, I, I went to work for the federal government, and in my job, I had to do a lot of travel, and, and I was uh, going to some rural areas and would meet with, you know, farmers and, and uh, uh, you know, things like that. And somebody had written up, and I, it was a great piece of guidance, and it was what you're saying, right? You know, because a lot of people think of, you know, federal employee, you know, kind of suit, tie, you know, the whole nine yards, the car, you know, the black SUVs or whatever. Sure. But it said your 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 vehicle should always be clean and presentable, but not too nice. Your clothes should be, uh, you know, clean, your uh, outfit well uh, put together but it shouldn't be too fancy. And, and, you know, the whole point of it was it went through these whole points, right? It was like, you know, making that connection, I think is, is uh, you know, what, what we're talking about here is if you walk in and, and, you know, let's just say you're going into an FFA meeting and you walk in and you're suited and booted to the nines and all flashy, you're not really going to be able to connect with that crowd. Yeah, you're going to alienate versus inspire, right? You're going to feel as if you're separate. Exactly. And, and that's, that, that takes a lot of emotional intelligence to be able to, to know when to be what to who, right? Yeah. No, I love it. So the standard was just well-kept, right? But appropriate for the circumstance. And that gave you a lot of autonomy and individuality and authenticity, right? You could choose who you needed to be, not that you were picking on identity, but how you wanted to show up to be supportive and connect with those that you were working with on any given day. And I'm guessing there were days when you were at the head shed or the headquarters and you had to, you know, actually put on the suit or the, the collared shirt. And that was the right thing to do to meet the standard of professionalism in that environment. Absolutely. And Lord, how I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you dream up all kinds of reasons to be of service to the farmers (laughs) because you needed to be with the people. (laughs) Exactly. I've been guilty of that many a time. (laughs) No, I I, I swore when I left the Corps that that was the last time I was putting on a necktie and well, that didn't happen. So uh, (laughs) Best laid plans, right? (laughs) Right. Uh, Bullet two. Having a very narrow say-do gap. What's that all about? It's about recognizing that trust and credibility is earned with the little things, right? What are the things we say and how do we follow it up with actual actions? Hey, I'm going to get you that report Thursday by 4 o'clock. And Thursday by 4 o'clock, the person has the report, right? We've said it. We actually do it. I think sometimes we believe that trust is won and lost in the heroic moment. Someone has a death in the family and you step in and you do their job for five days so they can travel to be with loved ones. That is definitely an amazing gesture, yet it's the simplest things that allow us to earn trust and credibility. And a lot of times people can talk a great game of things they're going to do and actions they'll take that'll benefit others. But then that's empty speech. They don't follow it up with action. And so our reminder is keep a really narrow say-do gap. And if you're having challenges with this, just don't say it, right? Maybe do the unexpected, but don't put the commitment out there unless you're going to fight like heck to honor it if you have to. Yeah, no, I I love that. And I love the way you you put that because, you know, yeah, those heroic moments are are great. But if you're not taking care of those little things in between, if you're not building that trust, if you're not building that credibility on those small things, a lot of times when you do the heroic thing, the, the first question people ask is like, okay, what do you need from me now? Yeah, exactly. Like, wait, this isn't who you are, right? Rather than thank you so much, you really had my back there. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, bullet three, and, and, and this is one 
that that I think a lot of leaders really struggle with, uh, especially how to do effectively and not necessarily sound authoritarian, but communicating your intent and expectations to others. So let's talk about that one for a second. No, definitely. It's um, it's about how clearly, consistently, constantly, continuously, if I could think of another C word on the fly, I would use it, right? Do you share what a definition of success looks like, right? Because it can be very casual. Whenever there's two or more people working on a project or having to be responsible for a result, right? This might be our spouse or a partner or working with our kids and our family or working with colleagues at work. Whenever two or more people are involved, there's a chance for confusion. And so if you're being clear around what success looks like, not only are you opening up debate, if someone else is like, well, no, I don't think it's about doing that I think it's about something else you're um, reinforcing what needs to be done and and what that that group or that team or that partnership is working on so I think the key is communicate intent and standards and intent you you're really sharing with people what they should do or what uh, is definitely needed what the main effort is so when you're not there they know your intent and they can be empowered to make all the decisions they need to do because they know what what the result should be. And when I say should, it's because they've agreed to it and it's been shared and folks are all on board. Yeah, no, and I love it. And, and especially that part about, you know, the, the expectations, because I can't tell you how many times I'm sure you've ran into it. You know, I, I've been contacted by a leader that's talking about how they're having trouble uh, with with an employee and they list all these things out there. And, and, and the first question I always ask is, do they know that these are things that are expected of them? And the answer usually is, well, they should. Well, should is not the right answer to that question, <laughs> you know, because yeah. you can't assume that they know, right? You have to be intentional about communicating those expectations, right? I think you're spot on, Earl. I think so much conflict comes from the shoulds, meaning I thought they should know versus they should know what to do because we've all clearly discussed what right looks like for us as a team or a group or an organization working through this challenge. Yeah, no, I I agree. And, and, you know, and I think that's that's kind of the sad part. Like you, you, you said conflict there, right? And and I agree. I like that word. I think that's the word you said anyways. Uh, it, it was a word I heard. Uh, but because people can't hit a target they don't know they should be aiming at. So you can't get mad at them for that. You didn't set that expectation. You didn't identify that target. You didn't identify the goal. Uh, and, and that's personal responsibility and accountability, right? A hundred percent, right? And I think if it's a very simple goal, right, you just identify it and, hey, take that hill, there's the hill, let's all take it. It's pretty logical. Folks get on board, it happens. You still communicate clear intent and expectations. Yet I think when there's greater complexity, a lot of discussion around what is actually the best thing to do, right, because motion does not always equal progress. And I think bringing other voices to the table is often needed. Yet once you've done that, uh, and there's you buy in or you've had to make a tough decision that's maybe not consistent with the majority. It's socializing that intent and, and helping people step up and do what needs to be done, even if it wasn't their first choice of action. Mm. And that ties nicely into to four, holding others accountable when they fail to meet the standards. So now you've set them. They know there's no excuses. Now is when you actually have the credibility to, to hold them to those standards, right? 
Absolutely. But intriguing enough, this is where strong performers can sometimes struggle, right? Because they see someone not meeting standards and they think for a second, you know, I could talk to them about it, yet I can just do it better myself. I can do it faster myself. I can just get it done and, and minimize conflict. And I think that's where people step uh, too far into enablement versus empowerment of teams. And I think when someone doesn't meet standards, it doesn't have to be paperwork in their HR file or the big stick of, you know, some sort of punishment or punitive matter. People want to perform well. It's just having a conversation. Hey, that was due by four o'clock. We, we didn't get your inputs and it made it really difficult to, to roll up the report for the big boss that was needed by 8 a.m. the next morning. Can we talk about how you can give your contributions in a timely manner? And then have a discussion, right? Accountability is talking about problems so that they can be prevented in the future. And I think a lot of leaders, especially some of the strongest performers, skip that step. And every time they do so, they put a lid on their team's capability because people don't get the chance to develop. They don't get a chance to meet and exceed standards. Instead, they're, they're actually getting coddled as a bar is being lowered for their report performance. Mm. No, that, 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 I love that point. I love that point. Well, Courtney, look, we've been sitting here for about yeah, a little over 45 minutes here, and this has just been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I really want to thank you for having it with me and my listeners today. No, thank you, Earl. And I just have truly enjoyed the conversation as well. And one thing I really want to direct people to is, you know, when we wrote Spark, our our mission, our calling was better leaders um, equal a better world. And we wanted people to have a chance to really understand in very practical, relevant ways how to develop their leadership skills. And so we made everything connected with the book. If you read the book, there are lots of online exercises. We made everything available for free. I'm talking worksheets, discussion guides, slide decks, videos, a whole library of resources to allow you to read Spark in community with a buddy at work or a small team at work. We've had amazing organizations uh, read Spark all the way through, everyone in their company getting a book and, and using the free materials. So I do want to direct everyone's attention to the site, the companion site that'll tell people more about Spark. It's sparkslead.us, so sparkslead.us. Um, and everything is there free for use. Uh, and I believe that's really why the book has gone viral because the content there is strong. And I can say that because it's been crowdsourced through our many years of working with clients and helping them find ways to develop better leaders. And we tried to bring the essence of that to our work in Spark, proven practices, free resources. No, I love it. Uh, and and uh, thank you for that. I'll make sure that it gets in the show notes uh, so people can take advantage of that. But you know, I, I'm looking at the book uh, here, holding my hand. I love the design, but what I love, and, and this sums up, I think this sums up the book great, which I, I see this is why you put the uh, this quote on, on the cover, uh, from Daniel Pink, uh, a myth-destroying book that will make you rethink both the theory and practice of leadership. And, and I couldn't describe it any better myself. Uh, thank you. Thank Angie and thank Sean for writing this book. Um, and thank you for making those resources available. Um, now, I know that you all are working on another book that's set to come out in the spring of 22. Um, Bet on you, how leaders win with risk. I love that title already. But um, what can you tell us about that book at this point? 
Absolutely. You know, I'm fresh from reading the galleys this morning, actually. So I can <laughs> give me give me time. I can tell you all about that book. Um, it's so great to see it uh, getting typeset and getting ready to, to come to market next spring. Uh, it, one of the things that I've seen in working with leaders through the years is that the problem isn't that leaders uh, don't have the skills or the capacity. The challenge is leaders sometimes don't dream big enough for themselves. And so this book is about how do you bring risk into your life effectively so that you can get the confidence to bet on yourself and how we don't really actually in life have a choice. We're surrounded by risk all the time. And what are the practical things we can do as people and leaders to embrace risk, be intentional about risk in our life, and ultimately allow it to propel us forward. And the book gets into lots of different things around taking risks, rethinking risk, how to handle failure and defeat, uh, how to recognize when you're actually winning. That's something I often see with the clients that I coach and develop. They might not always know when they're at those mountaintop moments, yet we know mountaintop moments are fleeting and there's lots to learn from the valleys. And so the book really takes a look at that. I love it. I love it. Well, as we work to wrap up here, I always like to ask, if, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover uh, that you want to leave listeners with uh, before we wrap up? I don't think so. This has been such a great conversation, Earl, and just uh, so well-rounded. So thank you for just bringing out the best in Spark and and having this conversation and doing what you do to help build leaders uh, around the world. Well, thank you very much. And and, and I want to say the same thing to, to y'all. Uh, keep up the great work. Um, besides the Spark website, if people want to find out more about you all, uh, what you do, what services you offer, what's a good place for them to, to find that? Sure. Our company is called Leadstar, L-E-A-D-S-T-A-R dot U-S. So we use all dot U-S URLs. It's kind of our hats off to U.S. Marines. Uh, but Leadstar dot U-S is where people can find more out about our company. Well, I love it. And uh, Courtney, uh, thank you very much for your service. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you all for what you're doing. Thank you, Earl. Semper Fi. Oorah. And uh, when you all get the, the, the release date set and, and are ready to start pubbing uh, the new book, let me know. I'd, I'd love to have, however we do it, whether it's all three of you individually or something, I'd love to have you all back on the show and, and talk about that. No, absolutely. Uh, You'd probably enjoy talking to Angie. I will say she's my better half. So if you had fun with today's conversation, uh, I'll send Angie your way. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, I may have to turn that one into a two-hour episode then. Huh? <laughs> nice. <laughs> there you go. Um and listeners, thank you for being with us. I don't see how you didn't enjoy this last 50 minutes or so. Uh, it, it's been a lot of great information. Get a copy of the book, Spark. We'll have the information in the show notes. Uh, check out what they do at Leadstar. And uh, thank you for being listeners to the show. I really appreciate everything you all do. Subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing the show. Uh, so great guests like Courtney and, and her friends can get their messages uh, spread further, reach more people and change more lives like she just told you that they want to do. Uh, that's how you can help us get that message out there. And thank you for taking that responsibility serious. You know, if you want to reach out to me, it's burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns, show ideas, anything. If you just want to find out more about what I do, you can reach out there. With that, thank you all for your time. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Electric acid.
Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Electric acid.